This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. It's a Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. The powerful wave of rage fueling Me Too has finally refocused public attention on sexual harassment and sexual violence, and starkly posed questions of power, of feminism, and of politics. How do we define violence? How do we discuss and experience sex? Who gets to tell stories of sexual assault? And who gets to be heard? How impoverished is our language for describing the intersection of power, desire, and violence? What is the relationship between individual struggles and collective protest? What do we do with the abusers? In short, this moment has recalled a much older question. How do we get free? In this collection of new and previously published writings, leading activists, feminists, scholars, and writers describe the shape of the problem, chart the forms refusal has taken, and outline possible solutions. Importantly, they also describe the longer histories of organizing against sexual violence that the Me Too moment obscures. Among working women, women of color, undocumented women, imprisoned women, poor women, among those who don't conform to traditional gender roles, and discern from those practices a freedom that is more than notional, but embodied and uncompromising. Contributors to this book include Tarana Burke and Elizabeth Adetiba, Lauren Berlant, T.D. Bhattacharya, Stephanie Kuntz, Melissa Jira Grant, Laura Kipnis, Gabriel Thompson, Larissa Pham, Alex Press, Jane Ward, and Tarian L. Williamson. Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. A Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Perhaps nothing has more defined the monstrosity of Donald Trump than his racist demonization and targeting of immigrants from Mexico, Muslim-majority countries, and those nations he deems to be shitholes, or, according to another account, shithouses. But what's seldom reported is that one of the key mechanisms that the Trump administration has used to target immigrants was rolled out under Barack Obama. It's called Secure Communities, and it's the culmination of decades of policymaking and politicking that have intertwined the United States' systems of mass incarceration and immigration enforcement, facilitating the growth of both, and resulting in something that scholars call crimigration. A new report from the Century Foundation and ACLU of Massachusetts argues that to fight both mass deportation and mass incarceration, localities and states must move beyond what's currently defined as sanctuary. This is where I pause to directly address you, my listeners, with the utmost sincerity. Your support on Patreon makes this podcast possible, both materially and also really psychically, In other words, your support both pays our bills and is also profoundly gratifying. If you haven't done so yet, 
please go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And if you donate $10 or more a month, I'll send you a book or books in the mail. Oh, and one other thing. I've been covering the opioid crisis for a while, and I have a new essay out at Slate.com on Trump's horrific proposal to execute drug dealers. My argument, in short, is while the president is no doubt inspired by foreign authoritarians like the Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte, his sadistically punitive approach to the drug war is, in reality, all-American. There's a link to my essay in the show notes. Okay, here's my interview with Cade Crockford, the author of the new report. Crockford is the director of the Technology for Liberty Project at the ACLU of Massachusetts and an MIT Media Lab Director's Fellow whose work focuses on the intersection of digital technologies and civil liberties through the lens of racial and economic justice. Cade Crockford, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. The Bush administration initiated and then the Obama administration rolled out this program called Secure Communities, which deals with a longstanding system through which police, local police, submit fingerprints to an FBI database to, for example, figure out if someone that they picked up is wanted on a warrant in another jurisdiction. And Secure Communities does something way different with this basic infrastructure. Can you explain what it does? For a long time, police departments have sent fingerprints from arrestees at the state and local level to the FBI. And that the purpose of that information transmission is to see exactly what you said. Is somebody wanted in another state on an outstanding murder warrant? Um, is someone using an alias? In other words, lying to the police about their real name uh, that's the type of information that local police are interested in when they send fingerprints to the FBI. So what advocates call SCOM, what the federal government calls secure communities, changed that process by adding one step. So now, instead of those fingerprints simply going to the FBI, they also go to the Department of Homeland Security, and that's the parent agency of ICE. So now every arrest in the United States, and I should say that there's an asterisk there, not every single police department across the country uses electronic fingerprint readers or sends fingerprints to the FBI for each arrest, but most do. And likely in the coming years, the few remaining departments who don't send all of their fingerprint data to the FBI will begin to do so. So in most places, most arrests, involve fingerprinting. Those fingerprints are sent to the FBI, and then because of ESCOM, the prints are shared with ICE. What is that mechanism of sharing these fingerprints with ICE? What does that allow ICE to do? Well, obviously, so under the Obama administration, the way that the administration talked about ESCOM was to say, was to sort of paint this good immigrant, bad immigrant narrative, right? So what the Obama people were doing was saying, we don't want to go after, quote unquote, hardworking immigrants with families. We want to identify the truly dangerous people 
in this country who have committed crimes or who have been arrested for serious offenses, and we want to take enforcement action against them. So ESCOM, Secure Communities in the Government's Language, helps us do that by identifying who these potentially dangerous people are. Now, it turned out that even under the Obama administration, and there are sort of pilot deployments of ESCOM, Boston was actually a pilot city for a number of years, that wasn't strictly true that most of the people, in fact, who were identified by ICE as a result of local jurisdictions' participation in this program were people who had been arrested for really minor offenses, many of them um, driving without a license, which is something that a lot of undocumented people are arrested for because in many places, undocumented people can't get driver's license, driver's licenses, but they still need to figure out a way to get to work. Um, and if you don't live in an area where there's reliable rapid transit, then you got to drive. So um, that is a particularly problematic arrest that, that local officials make that is leading to people's arrest uh, by immigration authorities. So, so even under Obama, we saw that this good immigrant, bad immigrant narrative that his administration was buying into with ESCOM wasn't actually leading to the worst of the worst, as they said, getting picked up through this program. It was people who were getting picked up for low-level stuff, um, drugs, you know, driving with no license, things like that. And well, making make, making local police the entry point into the deportation system is a particularly big problem in a country that has a system of mass incarceration because it means that exactly. enormous numbers of people have contact with the criminal justice system for all kinds of reasons. That's right. And and it's even worse in a system like ours that is so characterized by racial disparities, right? So it's not a mystery to see that ICE is mostly arresting, detaining, and deporting immigrants of color, um, despite the fact that there are undocumented immigrants of all nationalities and colors in the United States, um, because it's really just an amplification of existing racial disparities in state and local policing. So, you know, immigrants of color get hit doubly hard um, because they're more likely to be policed by our municipal and state police departments and therefore are more likely to come to the attention of ICE as a result of those um, interactions with our state and local folks in blue. So yeah, um, the, the first part of this report heeds the call of people like the Bronx, Bronx Defenders. Um, somebody from Bronx Defenders published a really fantastic New York Times op-ed in the early days of the of the Obama oh my god of the Trump administration <laughs> um, <laughs> calling <laughs> calling on jurisdictions like New York City to stop making arrests under what are known as broken windows um, policing methodologies. So these are you know low level offenses that aren't really a big deal, but under the broken windows theory, only by arresting a bunch of people for low-level offenses can you prevent bad things like murder and rape from happening. You know, I don't want to get into a dispute about whether or not broken windows works, quote unquote. Um, what it does do, this is not controversial, there's no debate about what we know it does, which is that it impacts poor people and people of color in really negative ways um, by getting people involved in the criminal punishment system for things that are really minor, like 
petty larceny, fair evasion, um, disorderly conduct, trespassing, uh, you know, drug offenses and driving offenses like driving with a suspended license, driving with expired registration, driving without insurance or driving without a, a driver's license. And I, I think it's particularly important that local jurisdictions do this because if we do, it won't just have the impact of protecting undocumented folks from the Trump administration. It'll also make our communities nicer places to live. I mean, you know, some people might be thinking, oh, well, if you're not going to be arrested for petty larceny or drug drug offenses, then, you know, what's the point in having those laws? And that's a really great question, actually, because I, I think we should also look to decriminalize some of those things. Um, many times, when folks actually have to go to court to face those types of charges, they get dismissed anyway. Um, so it's not like, you know, there are a ton of people doing a lot of time all over the country for these petty offenses. Our courts are clogged up with them and usually they don't result in anything happening. Um, maybe sometimes people get probation or things like that. But the point is that, you know, the, the system isn't even really punishing folks that much for things like this. Um, so why but not it is getting stop? them caught up, caught up in the system. And yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it's remarkable that because I, I, I find myself always making the point that drug arrests don't make up the majority of people in prison to try to kind of drill into people's heads that if we're going to solve mass incarceration, we have to think hard about how we as a society deal with people who do commit violent crimes. But on the arrest point, it's quite the opposite. You, you write that exactly. they that drug arrests make up an extraordinary proportion of all arrests. Yeah, a huge number of people are arrested for drug offenses, the majority of them drug possession every year in the United States, millions of people. And there's really no point in making those arrests. You know, I mean, we've been having, I think, a really productive conversation about uh, the drug war in light of how many white upper middle class people are using drugs. I mean, that's obviously bad that it that it took whiteness. Um, and its implication in, in drug abuse for us to have a, a more um, frank and compassionate conversation about drug use in this country. But it's good that we're having it. Um, and we were sort of moving in the direction of looking at drug use as a public health issue and um, responding to it in that way. What hasn't happened, though, even before Trump was elected, and now he's talking, of course, about killing people who sell drugs, you know, through capital punishment. Um, even before Trump was elected and Jeff Sessions became the AG, though, we were hearing a lot of rhetoric from local officials, but not seeing any action. So, you know, there were very few jurisdictions in the country. Gloucester, Massachusetts was actually one of them where the rhetoric was um, instrumentalized and turned into some real policy reform. You know, we should just stop arresting people for drug possession. We should never do that ever again. <laughs> a lot of these same DAs who are out there talking about, you know, including Democrats solving the opioid crisis are still are starting to, you know, charge drug dealers, many of whom are actually really just like users who share or sell a little on the side with with homicide and overdose cases. Right. So um, one thing I often worry about is there is obviously this newfound sympathy for drug users now that the face, the face of not the entire reality, because there are still plenty of people um, dying from opioid overdoses who are not white, but the face of the opioid crisis, no doubt white, no doubt led to more sympathy. But perversely, I worry that that can actually fuel punitiveness if the victim's more sympathetic. We are certainly seeing that from the Trump administration. And like you said, not just from Trump, but here in Massachusetts, we've been trying to fight off 
laws that would uh, allow prosecutors to charge drug dealers with with homicide. And in fact, we've already seen some of those prosecutions attempted even without um, statutes explicitly authorizing that kind of uh, prosecution. So, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, part of what I'm trying to do, part of what we're trying to do with this report that calls on local jurisdictions to do what what they can um, to protect undocumented folks, immigrants more broadly, and you know generally people of color and low income folks in cities, in progressive cities across the country, is to hold local officials accountable for some of their rhetoric in the in the Trump era. You know, I <laughs> these, think a these lot leaders of, of uh, their resistance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people are. Um, giving local mayors in cities like Boston and New York and San Francisco um, a pass or or in Los Angeles for saying a lot of nasty things about Trump. Um, but at the same time, if you drill down and look pretty closely at what cities could do and what they actually are doing, there's some really significant gaps there. So the the low-level arrest piece is just one of them. I have to say, you know, the Boston Police Department is – better in this respect than many. Um, Commissioner Evans, who's our, who's the head of our department, he actually brags routinely on public radio when he does his, you know, monthly shtick with the local uh, public radio station here. <laughs> he brags all the time about um, how he's decreased the number of arrests since he took over the BPD. And I actually think that's something that we should applaud in a major city police chief that he's saying, look, you know, arrests have declined 35% since he took over. That's significant. And, and he's proud you know, of we it. Could certainly, it's not something he's that he's embarrassed of. <laughs> no, he thinks it's great. And and I I applaud him for, for being proud of that and for doing it. I just think we could do more. I mean, I've seen the arrest record. I've seen arrest data from Boston, and we still arrest people for drug possession. We should stop doing that. Before we get any further, I think we should pause and say, you know, that that, that what your report is is looking at is identifying first the the fact that within this huge amidst this huge debate between sanctuary states and cities and the Trump administration that there's already this really critical and really unmovable um unless we have a a federal government that changes it in the future um unmovable piece of information sharing architecture that is was put in place by Obama, and that is there for Trump to use. And so the sanctuary policies are really quite limited because once people are in the system, their ice is tipped off to their presence. So first I want to ask, what measures sanctuary jurisdiction, so-called sanctuary jurisdictions currently have in place and to what degree they do obstruct the Trump administration's immigration enforcement efforts? Generally, the term sanctuary means one or two, or often both of these things. Um, One is that cities do not participate in what are known as 287G agreements, and those agreements explicitly authorize local law enforcement, actually deputize them as immigration enforcement. So that's really, really bad, and it's important that communities do not participate in 287G agreements with the federal government. Um, That's sort of like the most basic thing that cities can do is to actually not deploy their own uh, locally tax-paid officials as immigration enforcement. The second thing that 
sanctuary cities often do is they refuse to collaborate with what are known as ICE detainer requests. So um, say the Boston Police Department has arrested someone and because of this information sharing system, say it's a drug possession arrest and uh, they send the prints to the FBI, the FBI sends that person's prints to ICE, the local ICE official sitting in downtown Boston sees this come across his computer and thinks, oh, that looks like someone I want to go arrest. Um, so he sends a note over to the BPD saying, would you please hold this person? I'm in a meeting. You know, I don't want you to release this person. I would like to come and pick them up. In a sanctuary jurisdiction, the Boston Police Department will not hold anyone on behalf of ICE longer than they would have pursuant to their own law enforcement needs. So in some jurisdictions, including in Massachusetts, um, there, there was actually a really exciting uh, case in Massachusetts called LUN, which was litigated by a colleague of mine here at the ACLU in Boston. And that case says that basically all of Massachusetts is a sanctuary jurisdiction in the sense of um, local law enforcement not being able to collaborate with these so-called detainer requests because there is nothing in Massachusetts law that authorizes law enforcement to hold people when they do not have probable cause to hold them anymore. And so and there have been similar cases in federal in federal court as as well, because yeah. um, finding either both that uh, detainers are requests, one. So then the burden is on the locality if they detain someone without probable cause. And two, in another right. case that that they someone's Fourth Amendment rights were violated by um, detaining them without probable cause. That's exactly right. So in Massachusetts, the Lund case said the latter, that there's no statute that um, allows Massachusetts law enforcement to hold someone beyond, you know, the, the time that they would be able to hold them on a state or local law enforcement issue and that they cannot hold someone just waiting around for ICE to show up. So that's basically what it means to be a sanctuary jurisdiction, that you don't engage in these 287G agreements whereby you would deputize state or local officials as federal enforcement, immigration enforcement officials. And then the second is that you do not collaborate or cooperate with these so-called detainer requests. So that's great. I mean, jurisdictions should definitely be doing those two things. But as long as ESCOM exists, and various other data sharing agreements with sometimes even courts that are, you know, maybe making their uh, docket information available to ICE. So, you know, an ICE official will call over to the court maybe and, and say, send me docket information for all your criminal cases today. Maybe has a computer program that enables him to, you know, run that data against a list of people who uh, may have expired visas or who may be in the country um, without papers, and then sees, aha, there are two people who are going to be at court today. I can go pick them up. And so that's what we're seeing is happening all across the country. Um, in New York City alone, the number of people who have been detained by ICE at New York City courthouses has skyrocketed by almost a thousand percent since Trump came into office. And so it's, it's frankly not enough for cities to say we're not going to collaborate. ICE has brazenly touted courthouse arrests basically as also a way to 
coerce localities to cooperate with detainers. It's That's like exactly if, right. Because they say if you don't like this, then, well, cooperate with detainers. Yeah, they have. They've said, you know, we would prefer to take custody of these people when they're in jail or in the custody of state or local law enforcement, because that's safer for everyone. But if you're not going to let us do that, we're going to do it at the courts because that's safe for our people. And we know that um, folks are likely to show up there for their court dates. So there are obviously a number of reasons why that's horrifying public policy. Um, you know, you want people to show up for their court dates. You don't want people to be afraid of the court system. Um, but that is definitely what is happening now that ICE has um, set its sights sites on courthouses all across the country. The point of our recommendation here is to just keep people out of the system entirely. Um, and the Washington Times covered that section of the report. Uh, and they, they, were, they, they covered it in a way that I thought was really unfair because the, the, no. the arguments they said, yeah, I mean, well, they were saying, you know, ACLU says, uh, cops should stop arresting illegals. And I just want to say that's fucked up because we actually said cops should stop arresting everyone, not just people <laughs> who don't have papers to be in the country. Um, and and that's an important part of, of why we made the argument, because it's not just about protecting undocumented people. It is the public policy that we should have for everyone in the country that, you know, if you are suspected of committing a very minor crime, the answer to that should not be handcuffs and, and a cage, right? That we should have other ways um, of, of dealing with those issues as a society and that it's not good for anyone, especially immigrants, um, to be arrested under those circumstances. Yeah, just as criminal law, excessive criminal law enforcement has neg- negative collateral consequences for immigrants, measures to protect immigrants from deportation under Trump require these collateral benefits to people as a whole who have been harmed by the criminal justice system. Because for for decades now, we've had this, I mean, really going back to illegal entry being made a law, I think, in the 20s, if I remember correctly. But especially since the Clinton administration, we've had this growing interlinkage of the the criminal justice system, the the rising system of mass incarceration, and the system of, of mass deportation to, until they've become this mutually reinforcing monstrosity of of, of crimmigration. And what's yeah. really powerful about your your report is that that checking the system of, of mass incarceration and mass policing um will not only protect immigrants from from ICE and it's and it's what's necessary to protect immigrants from ICE because of secure communities, it will also reduce harms to everyone targeted by mass incarceration and policing, particularly poor people and particularly poor people of color. Yeah, exactly. I mean, folks in the civil rights and civil liberties community have for a long time, and certainly in the immigrants' rights community, have for a long time said immigrants are the canaries in the coal mine, right? Um, And so, sure, what we do for immigrants is going to help everybody else, too. I mean, it's not, you know, this this report is not even close to just uh, being, it's not just about remotely things that will, make life easier or better or less stressful for immigrants in the United States. It's, it's really about doing things um, that will have a hugely positive impact, at least in our view, on cities and states across the country for everyone, everyone in those communities. I mean, it's, even if you just think about it from a financial perspective, it is a colossal waste of resources to be spending so much money um, shuffling people in and out of jails and courtrooms on this low-level bullshit that mostly gets tossed out anyway. 
This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrel. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrel wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrel, out now from Verso Books. In 2020, we'll have some sort of Democrat, maybe a pretty good one, maybe a pretty mediocre one, or possibly even a pretty bad one, challenging President Trump. And I think it's important that that right now the left start talking about making a call to end secure communities a a, a priority platform um, on on immigration because localities and states and they were initially misled on this aggressively by ICE under Obama. Okay, localities and states really can't pull out, or else they would not be able to have any fingerprint sharing with ICE, which is not. I mean, sorry, with with the FBI, which is like not realistic. Um, but the federal yeah. government could, the executive could just end secure communities is my understanding. I just want to highlight that um, as as people on the left start vetting potential challengers to Trump, that this should be something that we're really looking for in terms of a, a left immigration platform. I think that the folks who are calling for the dismantling of ICE itself are on the right track a, a thousand percent. But but there are other things we can do, too. Um, and, and that's certainly one of them to at the, from the federal level to sort of uh, pull back some of these tendrils that the federal government has um, inserted into state and local communities throughout the country at the law enforcement and information sharing levels. And that's definitely one way um, and one pretty straightforward policy reform that would have a huge impact on folks throughout the country. Because the terminology used in enforcement circles is that things like secure communities and 287G are force multipliers for ICE that basically use uh, local and state law enforcement to 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 do as to, to do via as proxies what ICE cannot do itself. But it's a vicious cycle because the immigration enforcement also serves as a force multiplier for the mass incarceration system. So undoing both, I think that's a very powerful 
argument that your report makes. Absolutely. And and the that's not the only recommendation that deals with this problem of the increasingly intertwined nature of, you know, federal enforcement and state and local enforcement. We have since 9-11 moved increasingly in the direction of breaking down silos that used to exist, separating state and local law enforcement from federal agencies. Um, and that is dangerous. That is not a good thing. Um, and, I, you know, the the reason why this has happened is that folks, probably really <laughs> sneakily intelligent people in, in the so-called intelligence community at the federal level, um, made sure, I guess, that the 9-11 Commission report included um, the finding that, for example, one of the problems that led to 9-11 was a failure to, quote, connect the dots. Well, I just want to make it very clear. That's factually bullshit. That is not true. That is not one of the failures that led to 9-11. In fact, the FBI gave the CIA a bunch of very detailed information about the hijackers and said, we're concerned about these people. And the CIA just fucking ignored it. So, like, the idea that, you know, integrating state and local law enforcement into the national intelligence architecture and, you know, having programs like See Something, Say Something, where everybody wants to call the cops every time they see a Muslim in, on public transit is just absurd. Like, none of that is actually true. It did, you know, a failure to connect the dots in the sense that state and local law enforcement could have seen or done something differently is just, it's not what happened. It's a, it's a blatant misrepresent, misrepresentation of the actual um, law enforcement fuck-ups and intelligence fuck-ups that led to 9-11. But nonetheless, that has become the, um, the myth that we tell ourselves about what happened in the, um, you know, in the lead up to the 9-11 attacks. And so that's what you see, you know, folks in Congress, that's what you see people in the, in DHS and the FBI and even the CIA and the NSA talking about. And it's certainly what you see at the state and local level um, when these state and local law enforcement officials who have been given literally billions of dollars um, by Department of Homeland Security and DOJ grant programs in the name of counterterrorism over the past, well, I've been doing this for a long time, 17 <laughs> years now. Uh, <laughs> you know, they justify all of that stuff and, and many of the other things that I talk about in the report. Not, you know, when we, when we see local law enforcement through ICE's eyes as a force multiplier, it's not just in the immigration context either. Local law enforcement and state law enforcement are a force multiplier for the FBI as well. Um, you know, collecting huge quantities of information about millions and millions of people all over the country through technologies like license plate readers and surveillance cameras and increasingly will be things like facial recognition systems um, and other forms of, you know, uh, AI driven analytics. So, if we want to avoid living in a truly dystopian society where I think what we're seeing right now is scary, scary, scary shit happening to immigrants, like, you know, a mother walking with her daughter and then all of a sudden some CBP van rolls up and literally kidnaps the mom out, you know, and takes her away in the middle of, you know, a, a public street in broad daylight. That type of shit is happening to immigrants now. It is very, very easy to imagine a world in which we live under someone even scarier than Donald Trump uh, making use of this newly integrated um, federal, state, local intelligence, law enforcement architecture to do similar things to activists, you know, in, in 20 years who are citizens. So I, it, I really just can't emphasize enough how inaccurate the characterization of um, what led to 9-11 was, that it was a failure to connect the dots. But nonetheless, 
despite how uh, mythical that framing is, it is exactly what is driving all of this really dangerous stuff at the state and local level. And, and I should say, too, that that there's almost no oversight of that type of stuff. Um, you know, and, and there are pockets in the country, like in Seattle and San Francisco, there's some degree of oversight over these so-called fusion centers um, that were established after 9-11. But, you know, one question that folks like Ed Snowden have asked is, to what degree are these fusion centers um, spots where information that may be obtained pursuant to so-called national security authorities by the NSA through dragnet surveillance operations, to what extent is that information effectively being laundered for the purposes of state and local government uh, law enforcement use at these fusion centers? We really don't have answers to those type of, types of questions, but I think they're really important questions. And they're, because through they're parallel reasons. construction, local law enforcement can come up with a different rationale and never mention that they got yeah. the initial underlying intelligence from the NSA. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I guess you could sort of, you know, I think in a way, the the publication of this report is kind of opportunistic on our part because we have long wanted these things, right? I mean, the the steps that we are laying out for um, progressive communities to take to divorce themselves from the federal government to sort of build a wall, as we like to say, um, between our communities and the federal enforcement agencies, those are not new goals. Uh, everything in here is stuff that we've wanted to do for quite some time, but under an administration like President Barack Obama, you're not going to find a lot of sympathy for arguments in Democratic, uh, you know, in these big blue cities for saying, you know, the FBI is a really dangerous organization. We should probably remove our law enforcement officials from their task force operations and do whatever we can, frankly, to wall off uh, information about people in our communities from those agencies. You're going to be looked at like a crazy person, frankly. But but now um, because there's a constitutional law, Trump, there was a constitutional law scholar in charge yeah. of the F- ultimately in charge of the FBI. What's there to worry about? That's right. And, and now, of course, we see, thanks to uh, reporting from The Intercept, that in 2014, the FBI's surveillance of Black Lives Matter was much more extensive than we had previously understood. It was not just about social media surveillance. It involved um, confidential human informants. It involved, you know, infiltration and actually physical surveillance of activists following them around the streets, keeping track of what, what they were doing. And, that, and obviously a lot more that wasn't redacted in, in these documents that were finally released. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, in a sense, what we're doing now is opportunistic to say, we have long warned you people <laughs> about what is happening in this country. And for eight years, nobody really cared because the very attractive, you know, beautifully spoken um, constitutional law professor, first black president was in charge. And so everybody thought everything was cop- copacetic. Um, principles actually matter. You know, procedures actually matter. Things like establishing and solidifying secure communities, that actually really matters. Um, What's going on at the fusion centers really matters from a policy perspective. And it matters because, A, bad things happen when people you like are in charge, but B, somebody like fucking Donald Trump might take the reins of all this shit. And then what? And even if Obama had been a civil libertarian, which obviously he was not, once a president still just president for four to eight years, and you need to design checks on repressive state institutions with the worst president in mind, not the best one. Exactly. It's like exactly. a very I mean, weird a, way to think about this stuff that that people have been. 
in the past. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, you know, and it's, I mean, there's a, there's a weird sense in which the ongoing, maybe, I guess I'll just say misguided sense, it seems among liberals that the FBI is going to like swoop in and save us from Donald Trump is, I think, a continuation of the mismaking that's gone on under Obama about the role that these federal agencies play. Um, I just want to be very clear about something, which is that here in Boston, you know, we obviously saw a pretty devastating terrorist attack at the Boston Marathon. None of the things that the city of Boston has done to integrate itself with federal law enforcement, including participating on a joint terrorism task force operation that actually interviewed and may have, according to some local cops who blew the whistle, cast Tamerlan, the elder brother, as an informant um, for their JTTF operation. None of that stuff stopped him from uh, blowing up the marathon, injuring 200 people and killing four. So, um, Or look at Parkland, where there exactly. could not have been more very clear, straightforward warnings about the young man who ended up being the shooter to law enforcement. It's not about growing exactly. the size of the haystack. It's about law enforcement more intelligently dealing with uh, the needles that are right in front of their face. Yeah, exactly. And so in the in the section of the report that deals with JTTF, these joint terrorism task force operations that the FBI um, runs in cities across the country, there are over 100 of them. Um, we have one here in Boston. We recommend that cities withdraw from those agreements because they're actually really bad agreements for cities, A. I mean, it's an, it's yet another way in which city departments are um, integrating themselves with federal enforcement, including immigration, because ICE always has people tasked to work on these um, task forces. But the FBI, uh, since 9-11, in the years since, has changed its own rules to allow FBI agents to do all sorts of stuff that really harkens back to the counterintelligence program COINTELPRO era of the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, among those things is tasking confidential informants, even in investigations where there's no criminal predicate, which for those of you who don't know what that means, just means that the FBI can basically get your friend to snitch on you, even if they have no evidence to believe you're involved in any criminal activity. Um, there's a whole tier of investigation now at the FBI called an assessment, which allows for all these different types of invasive surveillance techniques, uh, going through your trash, looking at your mail to see who's writing you physical mail, performing searches, even in these databases of information that the FBI has access to that have been collected by the NSA through these with no probable cause. programs with no probable cause and they don't even have to suspect that you're involved in, in criminal activity. I mean, probable cause is a higher standard. That's that's the standard. There's not even reasonable, not even reasonable suspicion. Exactly. It's not even reasonable suspicion, which is the standard that cops are supposed to supposed to have to stop you on the street to ask you a question. Right. And and the FBI doesn't even have to have that to do these really, really invasive things to investigate people. So so we just think, you know, that in that type of federal climate, when federal law enforcement is allowed to do those kinds of things, we should not be deputizing local cops who are paid by local taxpayers to do those types of things as federal agents um, assigned to these JTTF. So that's another one of the recommendations in, in the report is that we do like San Francisco and actually just pull our cops off these things entirely. Yep. We shouldn't have been giving up our local cops uh, to do the federal government's bidding under Obama. And now that should be beyond clear to everyone who's not on the right wing now that Trump 
is president. Um, Cade Crockford, thank you so very much. Thanks a lot. Cade Crockford is the director of the Technology for Liberty Project at the ACLU of Massachusetts and an MIT Media Lab Director's Fellow. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after being deported from both Belgium and France, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually like this week, twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also helps introduce us to new listeners is you telling your friends about the show. We greatly appreciate all propaganda on our behalf. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. Mm-hmm.